I'm not very good at, uh, at preaching about sanctification. Uh, I'm deeply committed to the concept that we should be conformed to the image of Christ as believers, that our lives do in fact need to, need to be increasingly becoming more and more holy. Why I'm not very good at preaching sanctification is that I've grown up in a church background where at first it was all kind of legalism and religion and, uh, and it was just repetition of ritual and it didn't seem at all relevant. And then after that we had the, the idea that you would discover a whole new part of the church that's not like that. And, and I met people who were all about the Holy Spirit and about the life of God and experiencing His power. And out of that I experienced a whole lot of the, the, the theology that teaches you to be insecure about your salvation because if you don't see God moving then maybe God has abandoned you because maybe you've for some reason backslidden or something you're doing is wrong or your heart isn't right. And there was all these other threads of now you have to kind of earn your place with God in, in His favor and you can only be sure of that if you see His kind of signs and wonders happening. And we did see signs and wonders happening and we did see miracles and I do, I'm still convinced that God moves in power by His Spirit. But at the same time I think the theology was a little skewed and the, the emphasis there on sanctification left me with a kind of a sense of hopelessness that I would never be good enough that I could never sort out my life and in any case you had to kind of have this, this angst and this, this wrestling, this introspection going on inside of you and from there God drew me to another part of the church entirely that taught a, a lot more, uh, let's say, accurate theology of justification and I, I finally, probably only five years ago started to realize where the big problems come from and it was in an article that somebody wrote, I can't remember now, very, very clever guy, who explained how many believers end up in a place where they're using their sanctification as a measure of their justification, which means you're looking at your, your own degree of holiness and finding in some part of that your acceptance before God, when you're supposed to find your acceptance before God solely in the person of Christ. And so that moved me to a place of celebrating justification like never before and I never really wanted to preach anything else again except the glory of what Christ has done for us. Because if that bedrock isn't in place, the, the, the teaching and preaching on justification, on, on sanctification cannot be received with joy. If you don't have justification in place correctly theologically, if you don't know that Jesus is the sole basis of your full acceptance and assurance before God, sanctification teaching only tends to create a sense of insecurity. But now I want to believe that you can go beyond that and celebrate the idea of sanctification as well, saying that based on our position in Christ being so secure, we have no reason to fear judgment. Therefore, we have every reason to believe in the hope of becoming more like Jesus with no condemnation, with no fear of rejection, with the ability to go through ups and downs, successes and failures, and never feel like you're going to be expelled by God. And so sanctification then becomes something more of a, a glorious ambition, because it will take me my whole life and I'll probably only become... 0.001% more like Jesus. But there's no reason to fear that process when justification is well understood. So sanctification as we teach it in this church should not be a sense of self-driven performance. It shouldn't be, I'm now re-earning my right standing with God. It should be a response to His goodness to us that we say, God, we want to become better. We want to become more like You. Not out of fear that if we don't, we would be rejected, but out of this invitation that God gives to come closer to Him. And so, as I'm on a series, a short, sort of informal series on our church DNA and values, I wanted that preface because I'm still going to talk some more this morning about our growth 
in Christ and the development of our character and our virtue. But I want you to understand that none of this must be viewed at as a kind of a bar that you have to clear in order to be accepted. It's just this idea that this noble ambition that we can and in fact will become more and more like Jesus as we push into Him and His people. So let's pray and then I'll start my sermon. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray that not only kind of ideas would be thrown out today, but there would be truth declared. I pray that eyes would be open to see more of your love and your heart for us and how we can align our lives to that for your glory. Amen. So we're busy with a look at the church DNA and I spoke about the value of values two or three weeks ago. And values are a reflection of our desired culture. And when values are clearly stated, they can actually help us to enculturate those who are new. And so to some extent, this is also discipleship, that when we want to make someone into a disciple, we want to teach them about Jesus and teach them how to follow Him. Last week I spoke about the value of good character and emphasized that character is something that can be shaped and developed. What that means is you might view yourself as this shape and this person, your personality, your character, and the Bible says you can change. It says that there are things in your life that you must change, in fact, that you should repent of. There are things that you might view just as your temperament, but maybe they're indulging bad characters and sin. For example, a guy who just sees himself as a, as a strong person and he always has a short fuse. And if he's accepted that he's always angry or gets angry easily, he's basically staying in a place where he shouldn't stay. He should be repenting of anger and saying, I want to become a more Christ-like man. And when Peter says to, to husbands not to be harsh with their wives, what he means not to condemn the husband who is harsh, but to give hope, to say that husbands who can change. Wives, that's not your mission, to change your husband. That's not your mission. But God can put His Spirit so upon a guy's heart that a guy says, I don't want to be harsh anymore, and he, and he progresses in that area of his life through effort. There is effort involved in sanctification, that's why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's often a painful process of offense and repentance and self-scrutiny with a search for truth rather than self-justification. In other words, when I was a younger man, my pastor taught this, that if you're going to get a rebuke, meaning if you've messed up, you should take it on the chin, like a, like a blow. Like if somebody just gives you a, a whack, you just take it on the chin. You, you, you basically don't try to deflect the rebuke or explain it away or justify yourself, but you actually learn to receive correction. Now that was very difficult for me at various parts of my life where I've had to receive correction from someone else. And that's why last week I spoke about iron sharpening iron and better is the, the rebuke of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. We actually need to learn to take correction from one another so that we can grow. And uh, it's a painful process because it involves self-scrutiny and a search for truth rather than vindication. In other words, the hardest moments in my life are where I've had to say, yes, I was partially wrong. It's easy to admit when you're completely wrong. But when you can still argue your case in the argument, it's much harder to admit that you are partially wrong. And in many situations, we are partially wrong. So this idea that our character must grow means that as a, as a community, when we value, we value good character within our community, we're not acting as police of others, we're acting as police of ourselves. We're saying, I'm not going to look to develop your character, but I'm going to look to be in a soil where my character will be developed. So I want to bring my life close to people who are strong enough to correct me. I want to live amongst friends who are honest enough to point out the spinach in my teeth if I need that help. If I say, hey, I'm I, I, 
how am I doing? And then they come and say, well, actually, this, this, and this is probably not quite healthy in your life. Some people who haven't even been that close to me have had the, the helpful role at times of just asking questions, the right questions, like when last did you have a holiday, or tough questions like that. Why is it a tough question? It's, it's a tough question because a lot of us have weaknesses where we just ignore them and keep going. And maybe your weakness is self-sufficiency and you just want to never, never stop. And uh, someone might have to come to you and say, hey, when last did you take a break? So in ministry, the interesting thing is we're often looking at gifts and people think we need gifted and anointed ministers in the house of God. You may be a Christian and you look at what you're trying to do for God and you think a great deal about the skills you need, the, the right gifts, the anointing, and, and, and gifted and anointed ministers, of course, would be great in ministry. That, that's what a lot of people see when they see somebody who's ministering powerfully. You hear somebody who's uh, speaking and he's anointed and you, you see this guy and you think, wow. But what you're, what you're not seeing is actually the bigger, the bigger issue. And character is the bigger issue. Yeah. Gifting and calling and anointing come from God. Those are His business. We can ask for gifting. We can ask God to give us a call or a deployment or a vision and a direction. We can ask God for anointing. I mean, Elisha was looking for a double portion, which, by the way, didn't mean he was twice as greedy. Elisha didn't want to be twice the man Elijah was. He wasn't ambitious. The double portion was actually the right inheritance of a true firstborn son. So all Elisha was looking for was the full inheritance, not twice as much, just by the way. Um, sorry, I, I have a kind of a teaching bent. I lean that way. So gifting, calling, and anointing come from God. And those are the things we're often obsessing over when actually... Um, we should realize what we have a say in and what we don't have a say in. And that would set us free because if you realize that you have no say in the matter of gifting, calling and anointing, just like you have no say in how tall you are or in what country you were born in, yet you do have a say in your character. Yeah. That's what scripture teaches us. It teaches us that we actually can ex exercise influence over ourselves. So I can't exercise influence over, let's say, whether I have a gift of healing or not. Except by asking, 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 but it's not in my hands. Or a gift of whatever gift it is you want. A gift of playing the piano. Like maybe you can go out and practice and learn. So there is some influence. But trust me. Some of us will never be great at some things. Some of us just don't have what it takes in some area. And we obsess over those things instead of being concerned over the things that we do have within our control. Like our, our, our character. So it's a, it's a time for you to think, like, what, what is God calling me to deal with in life? And to a large extent, He's not calling you to change things you can't change. Like where you were born, or what gifts and anointing and calling there is in your life. But he is calling you to repent of bad character. And that's not personality, it's sin. See, God doesn't play favorites. His word teaches us that he's not a respecter of persons. So nothing about you can impress God. He doesn't play favorites. So it's not because of, um, like you say, well, God, you made me shy so I can never be this. That's never stopped him from using a person. He's gone to somebody hiding in a, in, a, in a threshing pit and said, Gideon, mighty man of valor, go out and stand up against the Midianites. God's not intimidated by those things. But what he does want is that you deal with the things you can deal with. So, when I think about believers, the priesthood of all believers, that's what the Bible describes the, the church as, as a, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people of God's calling. That means there are, in this room, many priests, many priests, because if you're a Christian and a believer, then God has actually appointed you to a kind of a priesthood. So, when I think about it that way, I wonder how much have we been put to service? How much 
has God put you to service as the priest that he has made you? He has called you. He's, he's got a portion for you as a priest in his royal priesthood. And then the question is, like, what, what stops us? What's disqualifying us? And the biblical disqualifier is not the things in God's hands, the gifting, the calling, the anointing, how loud you are or how soft you are. None of those things that you can't change disqualify you. The things that disqualify us or keep us back are our own character and how quickly we're willing to deal with those things. There were, there were these times in my life where I desired to serve God immensely and God held me in obscurity. What I mean is he put me on the bench and every time I was like volunteering it just never happened. You want I'll do that? No, not you. I want to be that? No, not you. What do I mean no, not you? I mean the pastor and the elders acted like I didn't exist. And I was all keen like you know I, I want to be involved in the church and then they just didn't come looking for me and when I offered I was like well, inquired you know is there a possibility? It's like no, not you. What was going on all the time was that God saw various insecurities and issues in my heart. Jealousies, competition, selfish ambition, a desire to prove myself, a desire to show off how good I am at something. And some of that was because of my poor relationship to authority or how I was fathered. I could blame all sorts of other things, but in the end it made no difference who I blamed for being like that. God still wouldn't use me until I repented of some of those things, until I was willing to humble myself and say, God, change me. And there was a time where I went through a couple of events in my life that were very, very painful, and they were like ministry failures in a way, and sense of disappointment with leaders and people around me. And God recalibrated everything about how I saw my place within His body. He recalibrated my relationship to the fellow saints. He recalibrated my relationship to Him as my God and Father. He recalibrated my relationship to the leaders in the church and to ministry itself and the basis and motivation for ministry in my life. He changed everything along with a very profound kind of humbling. And I would put it to you that most of the non-promotion is because we would do harm if God promoted us. It's that simple. In other words, most of the times God doesn't give you something you want is because it's not good for you. And He's a good Father. He's not withholding just out of some kind of vindictive spitefulness like, you will never do that because I just don't like you. That's, that's not the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is He wants the best for us in life and ministry and in the process sometimes he withholds things from us that we want because we're simply not in a place where we would do well with those things. Ministry for example is not a platform for self-elevation or showing off or proving yourself. It's not a display of giftedness and many times what we start to build in ministry when those th things are slightly wrong we start to draw attention to what we're doing rather than bring glory to Christ. And ultimately God is jealous of His own glory. What I mean is He knows that He's the only truly worthy one. And so when, when fame and, and, and accolades are handed out, they're actually for Jesus. And some people, their motivation for doing something is subtly just to make a name for themselves. Subtly in their hearts, it's just I want people to think I'm good at this. I mean, like Phil, I love this guy, and, and he's going to plant a church, and I'm praying that he does extraordinarily well. If you go out to plant a church, God is going to sift your heart to the degree that anything you do, you will be thinking, is there a shred of me in this that wants to look successful in the eyes of man, or is this all for the glory of God? And it's terrifying. And so in that sense, I'm saying when we do and build things, God will genuinely scrutinize why are you doing what you're doing? Is it for His glory or is it for you to look spectacular in the eyes of people? This is why I've often looked at churches where a guy really gets a, what you would call the, the man's interpretation of the external signs of success. like. 
major growth of numbers. Somebody has a church and within a few years it goes from 200 to 1,000 or 2,000 people. And I look at that and I think, wow, is, is anyone capable of handling that? Is anyone strong enough, what I mean is humble enough, to handle that kind of growth? And it's, it's frightening. And then there are other times that I actually am grateful that God has never tested me with that. Like my friend who, who said, you know, God, I know money is stewardship and I see you've given other guys millions of dollars. At least once test me to see if I could steward a million dollars. <laughs> it's like, if you take it genuinely, it would be more terrifying to be rich than not. If it's a stewardship before God. So when we look at these aspects of our lives, what is our value system and what is our motivation? It's very important that you understand character is at the core of all of this. And God is deeply concerned with the character of His children. When you look at the choosing of the seven men in the book of Acts, it said, that's Acts chapter 6, when the, the church was growing, uh, the apostle said, choose seven men full of wisdom and the Spirit, and let the people choose them. In other words, they should be recognized as good characters by the people of God. So there's this sense that character counted because they need to be full of wisdom and the Spirit. And that's, that's kind of like recognize this wisdom as their character and how they deal with people. Why? Because they're going to have to sort out disputes between fighting factions of widows in the church. It's a, it's, it's a relational matter that has to be handled with nuance and sensitivity. And their character was important, full of wisdom. When you look at um, Paul confronting Peter, Paul confronted Peter on his inconsistent behavior toward his Gentile friends when Peter's old Jewish friends arrived in town. It's in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul says I, Peter was clearly in the wrong. And he called him out on this idea that Peter had been hanging out with Gentiles, but when his Jewish friends came to town, he shunned his Gentile friends. Peter was being a hypocrite, and Paul wouldn't let that value system that's, that's celebrated, which is we are one in Christ, that's the value, this unity, but the actual practice, the behavior of Peter's life was inconsistent with his belief and that's hypocrisy if you don't live what you believe it's hypocritical Peter's, Peter had to deal with that so Paul called him out on it and what I'm saying here is that the gospel will always demand a reckoning with our values and character and hypocrisies when there are inconsistencies between what we say we believe and how we actually live and so this becomes a very like an endless subject as a believer because every part of your life and practice needs to be brought into conformance with your beliefs otherwise you're behaving hypocritically so for example I can't say um, take a touchy subject like drinking alcohol and freedom I can't say that scripture teaches you're, that it's not a sin to drink alcohol, which is what scripture does indicate that it's not sin, it doesn't forbid alcohol, it forbids drunkenness and addiction or slavery to being enslaved to strong drink, many things like that, but it never anywhere says that to actually have a glass of wine is a sin. So if that's my belief, that I have that freedom, then I have to grapple with, will I ever drink a glass of wine? And in what context will I drink a glass of wine? And in what way will I do that for the glory of God and not just the indulgence of the flesh? And on and on those questions have to go. How you live your life needs to be with integrity, yeah. meaning consistency between what you say you believe and your actions. So because of my own declarations that I, I believe that's what Scripture teaches, I have carefully selected a context in which I'll have a glass of wine. It's usually only with fellow elders in this church's eldership team where one of the guys culturally, his culture celebrates wine more than mine does. So when he brings a bottle of wine, I'll have a drink. But what I won't do is go and take that bottle of wine 
another bottle of wine and put it on a table in front of my Christian brother who doesn't have the same belief and says, I don't drink. I'm not going to drink in front of him because then I'm offending his conscience, which I believe to be a weaker conscience. And scripture teaches us not to go and offend the brother with a weaker conscience. Why am I saying all of this? I'm, I'm trying to paint for you the idea that your faith must affect your life. Yes. What you say you believe as a Christian must alter exactly how you live. <coughs> Everything about how you live. How you date, how you flirt, how you court, how you work, how you eat, what you eat. I mean, it's crazy, but it must affect everything. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about a, an endless road of introspection. I'm talking about a conscience that is at peace with what I believe and what I'm doing. So, Peter, who was called out by Paul, much later in his life, much later, writes this. I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, um, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he's writing. As a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So you see that the gospel is in there, that it's uh, written to believers and viewing those who are believers as having an equal standing. They've obtained a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God. In other words, it's rooted in justification. So it's not yet how you're living, it's that you are a brother or a sister in the faith, that what you believe is what I believe, we are both Christians. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Stop there for a moment. All things that pertain to life and godliness. That's how you live your life in a, in a, in a God-like way. Do you know that God, godliness as a word is not a religious word. It's a, just a word. It means being like God. Now, many of us don't want to say that, that I would want to be like God. Because, of course, you can't, in terms of position, want to grasp for God's status. But that's not what we're talking about. We're saying being like God in that I want my character to be like His character. If he hates sin, I want to hate sin. If he loves truth, I want to love truth. If he's merciful, I want to be merciful. If he's compassionate, I want to be compassionate. If he's generous, I want to be generous. I want to be like God. He's my hero. I want to imitate him. I don't want to be in his place. Okay, that's what's being written about. But look, the divine power has granted, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So where's the strength to do this? It's in God Himself. His divine power is going to enable us to live the life we should live in the godliness we should have. So, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So there's a believer, you are called to His glory and excellence. That's wow. I mean that God's calling you upward. In, in, in your life, in your, in your behavior, in your character, in your conduct, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So there's something trying to catch you that you're supposed to escape from because He's promised it. He says, this is what I'm doing. I'm taking you out of the world. I'm putting you in my kingdom. But I'm taking you not just out of the penalty of sin, but I'm breaking the power of sin and I'm delivering the presence of sin from your life. I'm getting you to escape the world and its sinful desires. Escape the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Become partakers of the divine nature. That's not becoming a little new age self is God. No, it's not... You know, I'm a little God. No, it's partaking in meaning having fellowship with God. 
So God wants to call us into an excellence that allows us to have fellowship with Him. For this very reason, 2 Peter 1 verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. There's, there's the word, with, with good character, with virtue. So when you're a believer, you start to make every effort not just to say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. But actually, the faith that saved you is also the faith that continues to save you. It's the faith that sanctifies you. The faith and grace that, just, that justifies also sanctifies. And so we come to Christ now as believers and we say, I want to change. And He says, yes, I'll help you. I'll give you grace. I'll give you conviction. I'll speak to you. I'll confront you. I'll sometimes discipline you. So make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That's like goodness or good character. And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. That's a consistency. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So many of us feel like we're ineffective or unfruitful and then we look at programs or ministries or things we can do that would try to make us more fruitful. Like if I just took on this project and went and started feeding the kids at the rubbish dump, which is a good thing. Do it. I'm not trying to stop you from going and feeding the street kids at the rubbish dump. But the problem is, when, you, when you're looking at yourself and thinking, I'm unfruitful, I'm not doing enough for Jesus, our default is to go and start to do something for Jesus. But this scripture is teaching us differently. It's saying, if you are adding to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection and love, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is not, should I be doing more, but should I be growing? Should I be growing in my character? And once you're finally growing in character, you start to become more fruitful as a product of that. It's just like Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Only if you abide in me, meaning he is the, the vine and we are the branch. And if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. I want to just also add something that, besides the point. But when I was looking at these words in the original language, I, I saw that that word um, virtue, right near the beginning, supplement your faith with virtue. The literal meaning is manliness. Manliness. Now that's not to upset any of the ladies here, but the idea behind it is that this is the way Peter's writing. He speaks about later brotherly affection. So he's masculinized this whole portion of scripture. He's dealing with men but he's actually dealing with believers too so it's not just for men but it's written as if it's written to men which then in in context puts manliness as goodness that's why it's translated back in english to virtue and makes it more accessible to all of us which it should be you should all be feeling the scripture applies to your life male or female but i just thought wow what a contrast to this idea of toxic masculinity just as simple as that. If you want to understand two cultures and two kingdoms, then you have to see that biblically, manliness was seen as goodness, and a man was seen as something good made in the image of God. Wow. So, so much for toxic masculinity. Toxic men exist. I'm not saying there's no such thing as toxic men. But this generic definition, toxic masculinity is an insult to God, who made man and woman in his image. And you get toxic woman, but femininity is not toxic. 
May. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See the basis again? Justification. If you're going to start to work on your character, if you're going to wrestle with how you live out your life as a Christian, you must do that from the place of knowing your sins are forgiven. You must know that your former sins are forgiven. He's been cleansed from his former sins. So that basically means God has washed me and accepted me and now I'm going to become more and more like him. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's the test then of whether our values are actually lived out and expressed. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. It's not, you're not immature. He's not saying these are new things. He's saying these are old things. You know about them. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. So he's actually saying, as long as I live, and I'm going to die soon, but I think it's right to remind you to work on your character, to work on adding to your faith virtue and godliness and all these other things that we just read. He says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Wow, that's commitment. So he's saying, I want you never to forget this stuff even after I'm gone. I want you to easily remember that you should be adding to your faith virtue. What was that whole list? I've already forgotten. Let's look at it. He wants them to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So are we growing in these things? He has no shame in saying you need to work on these things because he's the man that Paul came along and said to his face, you're in the wrong, you're not acting in accordance with the gospel. Michael Eaton said, good models, this is church models, uh, patterns of leadership, structures of polity in a church. Good models don't make good churches, good people do. So, does it matter if you don't see yourself as a team player? Does it matter if you see yourself as a pioneer, out there on your own, charting your own course? It wouldn't matter, it wouldn't matter, if you were not part of a body. This is like using one illustration of character quickly. Does it matter how you see yourself? I, I don't, you're saying all these things, but I'm, I'm not a team player. I don't want to go this road with you. Well, it wouldn't matter if you were not part of a body. But values are not disconnected from vision and mission. And values either support this vision or mission, or they undermine it. So what is the vision and mission of God in a believer's life? Do you have any idea that God has a vision and a mission for your life? It's a bride without spot or wrinkle. That's what he has in mind. He's coming back to take his church to himself. Some of you look forward to the rapture. Some of you just want to see it if it plays out like a movie. Some of you don't believe in it, it's okay. But the issue is Jesus is coming back and he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for individuals who are conformed to the image of Christ. For what reason does he want us conformed to the image of Christ? It's very simple. It's for reconciliation to and relationship with God, the Father. And he wants us located in his body. In other words, we are being built up into a holy temple. We are one body made up of many parts and each part has its place and belongs. Each brick in that temple has its place and belongs. God has a place for you in his body and you belong. So back to the idea, what does it matter if I'm a team player or not? It matters greatly because God expects you to be part of his body, the body of Christ. God expects you to find your place in his house. God expects you to fulfill your role. 
So we, we value these things because of the goal of relationship with God and right fitting with His people. And this is the vision God has for your life. But we have to exchange old values for new values. And it's a kind of a, a steady adjustment in your life. I threw out some questions here in my notes I want to give to you. You had to ask if you start to then examine not just your individual character development, not just you as an individual, but the fact that God's conforming you to the image of Christ in order for you to be in relationship with Him and in right relationship with the body of Christ. So God has a plan to fit you into His body, into His family, into His household where you belong. And so this idea then means our embracing of kingdom culture and kingdom values leads to us fitting in better leads to us fitting in with God better because he can't fellowship with unholiness he can't fellowship with sin so you want intimacy with God then you work on holiness in your life you, you have acceptance before him justification but you want to feel the nearness with God you need a clean conscience you want to stop sinning? Why? Just because God said it's not good to sleep with your boyfriend? No. That's, that's not the reason that you don't sleep with your boyfriend. You don't sleep with your boyfriend because you want to be able to fellowship with God. You want to deal with sin in your life, not just as a thing out there, as a separate rule that you have to obey. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. Do I want to feel near to God? So, as we come into how we live our lives, what values we're living out, it affects us in so many ways. Like, you might ask the question, what is marriage for? What is marriage for? Why, why will you ever get married? You need to change your thinking about marriage. Marriage is for the glory of God. Your marriage is something that God invests a part of Himself into, for He has a plan and a purpose to use it for His glory. So, I'm married, not firstly because I just don't like being alone. I mean, that was very much a motivator in my life. But as I, as I got to understand what God wants, He wants a marriage that's a picture of Christ and the church. He wants a demonstration on earth of something of the kingdom, which means that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. That's from Ephesians chapter 5. So God has an idea about marriage. And he has a plan and a purpose for your marriage. He owns it. He can lay claim to it. You think you're going to get married just to make your life better. No. You get married because you submitted to God. If he calls you into that institution. If he gives you a husband or a wife. And then you honor him with your marriage. It's not for you. It's for him. Doesn't always go right. Many times it's not easy. Oftentimes we fail. But if we don't understand the purpose, the value of the kingdom, then we haven't even got a hope. What are kids for? Do you know the Bible, God lays claim to your children? Kids aren't for your pride. They're not so you as a Malagasy can look good in society. The Bible says God desires godly offspring. So God entrusts children to you to raise for His glory. He takes them from you. They belong to Him. Their eternal destiny is in His, His plan. Not, it's not, it's not in, under your control. You serve Him by parenting your children. How you parent your children, God has an investment in. He, he said, they're mine. Everything is His. This is offensive now when you come to individualism or collectivism. When you come to a society that puts family first or an individual and wants to put themselves first, both of them must be upset by now that God says, actually, I decide, and you better pray and ask me how many children you should have. What? God, you want 15? Okay, but can I adopt? You can. It's okay. God didn't say 15 anywhere in specific, but maybe to one person. What is money for? What is money for? Pizza? I use it for pizza sometimes. I am a firm believer that money is also for chocolate. 
But you have to have a sense of, before all of that, God rules over that part of my life. I can't just spend everything I have on myself. I can't just pursue riches with no consequences. The Bible says many seeking to be rich have pierced themselves through with a multitude of griefs. So if you think you're free to just relate to money how you want to, I just like cool clothes, think again. Money is to be submitted to God. Marriage is submitted to God. Children, your children belong to God. What is leadership for? What is power for? You want to be in charge. Why? Why am I leading the elders team that leads this church? Goodness me, I, I hope it's not because I'm addicted to power. See, I think I probably would have been when I was younger. And maybe that's why when all my colleagues and peers and friends were being promoted, I was on the bench. Because God had to teach me some lessons that actually it's, it's a, the wrong idea of power if you think it elevates you. Leadership is service. Yeah. Laying your life down is how you actually find God. So what's your view of power? What's power for? So there are so many times that Jesus explains and teaches that there is a need to learn a new culture. He has parables that start like this. The kingdom is like... And then he goes on with the parable. The kingdom is like... What was one of them? A mustard seed or something like. You know, the kingdom is like a man who does this and this and this. You know, the kingdom is like... Why is Jesus doing this? Because you don't know what the kingdom's like. You don't, you don't know what the kingdom is like. It's not like this world. It's very contrary to this world. It's very other wide value system. It's not the value system you get just by growing up as a Malagasy or as an American, as a South African or whatever your culture is. It sucks. It's useless. It really is. Your culture doesn't get you closer to God. Your ways, your traditions, they're described as dead. The dead tra traditions you inherited from your forefathers. That's how the Bible speaks about your traditions. Ah, but we do Thanksgiving. What does God think? If it's just a cultural identity, it's useless. If it's a genuine Thanksgiving to God, the way it was probably originally founded, then it has meaning. But traditions aren't automatically good. It's why and how they represent the value that comes from the right root. And the value of thankfulness is great. But being proud that you have Thanksgiving, don't worry, the Canadians were there to compete with the Americans. <laughs> the South Africans, we just, we have Thanksgiving, it's called a bride. <laughs> we do it often, we have barbecue. And we, we make lots and lots of meat on the fire. And then we celebrate, but we're actually just worshipping food. <laughs> Meat in particular. So where am I? I need to wrap up now. I've gone too far. What would a, what would a good church look like? We're speaking about character, godly people, but the issue is that they're not just Christians, they're people that have a value system or a culture of the kingdom. Growing in grace and knowledge and living out their faith according to the values of the kingdom. Values we find in the Bible like mercy. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? God requires something of you if you're a believer. He says, To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So there are these things God requires of us, like doing justice, but loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. In the corporate context, in the body, we develop a culture of the kingdom of God in a community of saints that live on earth. This is what Augustine called the city within the city. He spoke about the city of God and the city of man. And the city of God is a city in the city of man, where you have a culture of the kingdom being lived out by a community of believers that is counter to the culture of the world. So we value new things within the family of God. We value 
evangelism, prayer, worship, friendship, discipleship, priesthood, servanthood, the body, the bride, the word of God. We value things disproportionately and totally unexpectedly. Like if you weren't a Christian, what on earth is it, does it mean to value worship or prayer or evangelism? But I'll explain in the coming weeks why these values are kingdom values and how they're expressed in the body of Christ. These values are not distinct and independent. They're actually intertwined. Anyway, I need to wrap this up. Stop right there. Next week, I'm going to share on the value of friendship as our first value as a church. It's not the most important value, it's one of the values that a community of saints must carry. But I'm going to look at how that value originates with God Himself and how God expressed His friendship toward us by dying for us while we were still His enemies. So as we continue this series, now I hope you've got a deep sense of the, the idea that values are important. We're going to explore some of the values of the kingdom and how they define us as a community. Won't you stand? Pray for us that band can come up so we can worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you call us into a life. You don't just save us from our sins, but you save us into your family. You call us into a life that brings you glory as we become more and more like you. And God, as we stand here as a community of saints, I ask that you would encourage our hearts that it's possible to wrestle with our character. It's possible for us to put effort into adding to our faith virtue. And to virtue we want to add and add godliness and, and self-control and brotherly affection and love, Lord. We want, we want to add and grow and mature in you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that you're the God who provides the power and the promise. You're the God who says you will give us what we need for life and godliness. Help us, Lord Jesus, to grow in you.